0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel account that Daniel read for us a few moments ago in John chapter 20. John Gospel chapter 20. We have here in uh, verses... well, actually beginning in verses 11 and following, the astonishing account of a dead man whose name was Jesus appearing to a woman named Mary. And we see in verse 18, this is Mary Magdalene, which actually just means that she was Mary and likely from Magdalene. And she's the one from whom Jesus cast out seven demons. And she was there at the place where they had buried this dead man, Jesus. And she ran and and told the disciples about His resurrection, but apparently had come back again. She just couldn't get away from this One whom she loved so much because she had been healed by Him, made whole by Him, And mostly forgiven of her sins by Him. saved by Him. So she was there. Weeping. Lamenting. Crying over the fact that He was dead. And thinking that someone had stolen His body. And then He appears to her. Verse 15, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing Him to be the gardener. She said to Him, Sir, If you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And really in that, He opens her eyes and allows her to see that it is Him. As she turns and says to Him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. She starts clinging to Him. Lord, it's You! You're alive! A dead man named Jesus is alive. Appears to this one Mary. And uh, then, in verses 19 and following, we read about Him appearing to the disciples. Verse 19. When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fears of the Jews. Remember, we talked about this at our earlier service, they're hiding, they're cowering in fear and despair. The doors, of the shades are pulled down. The doors are locked. They're hiding because they're afraid. They're cowering. Their Savior, the One that they thought was going to be the Savior, the One that they thought was the Messiah and going to redeem Israel and all this stuff, now He's dead? And they're hiding for fear of the Jews and probably Also of the Romans as well. And then suddenly, look at the text. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Doors closed, locked. Windows closed, locked. Hiding for fear of the Jews. And all of a sudden, here's Jesus. Whoa! Can you imagine? We can't imagine. We've heard it so much. We like take it for granted that Jesus was raised from the dead. But think about how miraculous this is. People don't just get up from graves. People don't get off the cross, the Roman cross, and live. And yet, here He is, standing in their midst, right before them, alive. Now, we read on a little bit. Verse 24, Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, wasn't with them that first Sunday, that first Lord's Day. But he was the next Sunday, the next Lord's Day. And what happens, as you read further on, and it says in verse 26, eight days again, and don't misunderstand, there's different ways of counting... In the uh, Greek and in the Hebrew, they counted the first day as one and then that last day as one. And that's why it says eight days. But it was again on the first day, the next Sunday. His disciples were inside and Thomas was with them this time. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut again. And Jesus stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. That's because Thomas said, unless I put my finger in his, in his, uh, hands and my hand in his side, I won't believe. And Jesus says, okay, here I am. Here it's me. I've got the nail print. It would have been in the wrist. Not there, but here. Because that's where the cross would have held him up. Would have just pulled right through your hand if it was in your palm. But they put the nails right there. And so he's going like that. And he says, Here, Thomas, put your finger right there. They, they considered that the hand. Put it right there. And then, here's my here's my side. Look! Well, why was he doing that? Why did Jesus go out of his way to do that? You know why? To make sure that they knew it was Him. wasn't somebody else that looked like Him. wasn't some other guy who had not been crucified. It was Jesus, who was crucified, dead, and buried. And now, on the third day, He is miraculously standing in front of them. Now, if you would please, turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke, chapter 24. Luke 24. I'm just going to mention this as it is the same account. And by the way, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And all four of the Gospels tell of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you have four witnesses who are telling of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's Luke's Gospel. And you remember, Luke was a doctor, an educated man and he had done research to find out the accounts of the of this one called Jesus. And he did research into his life, his death, his burial, and here his resurrection. And Luke tells the account that Jesus appears to them there in their midst. The disciples are again here and he himself is in their midst. That's verse 36. And... They were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a ghost, but he says to you, why are you troubled and do doubts arise in your heart? Verse 39, see my hands and my feet that it is I myself. It's not somebody else. It's me. I was dead and now I am alive. It is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. In other words, it wasn't a ghost. It wasn't a phantom. Touch me, see, flesh and bones. This is a man who was dead. They saw him die. They knew he was dead. They saw where he was buried. And now, hallelujah, he's in their midst. And he's not a ghost. Not a spirit. Not a phantom. obviously has some special abilities to appear and to appear even though a room is closed and locked. But He's not a ghost. Not a phantom. In fact, in this account, He even says, don't you have any food? And He eats. Ghosts don't eat. So here is Jesus in His resurrected body, subject to gravity, breathing air, just like we do, flesh and bones, and He even eats which means that his mouth works, his throat works, his stomach works. Everything is there. He's raised from the dead, alive again. This is Jesus raised from the dead. One more passage here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For those of you visiting, I'm just getting warmed up. This is only the introduction. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. This is the Apostle Paul writing. Here we have another witness to the risen Lord. Paul was not one of the disciples that was there in that room when Jesus appeared to him. But Paul was on the Damascus road when Jesus appeared to him. And we have further testimony from the Apostle Paul that he met with Paul, that Jesus met with Paul in Arabia, in the school of Arabia, the seminary of Arabia, we call it, where he taught Paul so much of what Paul learned. The resurrected Jesus appeared to Paul. So here's what Paul says. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture, and that He was buried, and that He was raised, "...on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also." Here is an amazing account that Jesus appeared to all of these people alive. All of these people. And we have to believe that not all of them were necessarily His disciples, His followers. 500 at one time. There had to be a few unbelievers in there. A few skeptics. Just like those that come to church, you know. Well, that's what's going on over there? Let's go see what's happening. So they come down, they come to see this Jesus. Five hundred at one time. That would be a good sized church. But five hundred at one time saw Jesus risen from the dead. What an amazing, an amazing event. A supernatural event, for sure that one who is dead is now alive. This one Jesus who claimed to be the divine Son of God, true God, true man, as much God as if He had never been man, as much man as if He were not God, true God, true man, the hypostatic union, the God-man Jesus, was dead. And now, He is alive. He was dead, buried in the grave, but on the third day he arose and he appeared to all these people. And I can't say that this is the complete list of everybody that he appeared to. You have to think there might have been a couple of other people on that beach. In John 21, when He showed up on the beach and, you know, the other disciples were there. Maybe there were other people that saw Him. He, he appeared to all these people alive prior to His ascension into heaven. He was dead. He was buried. And He's alive. And we have all these accounts. So I suggest to you that all the reports, all the articles, all the news stories, All the documentaries from so-called scholars and scientists who say that this is a myth are wrong. They are wrong. We have historical evidence by at least five different people writing of an historical account saying that Jesus was raised from the dead. That is Far more evidence than we have for almost any other accepted historical event in the history of the world. Far more. But yet they say, oh, that can't be. Just written by men. It can't be true. It can't be real. It can't be. They would never use the same criteria with the stuff they want to believe. If they want to believe it, oh, just one little guy said it somewhere 10,000 years ago, and we believe it's true. But with Jesus, no, 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 can't be true. can't be true. Why? They don't want it to be true. They don't want it to be historically accurate. But we do. We know the truth. Forget the fact that this is the Bible. These were men writing about what they saw. And their witness is true. That's what John says right at the end of his Gospel. This witness is true. This is what happened. I saw it with my own eyes. That's what it's all about. So there's my Easter message for the day. Jesus was indeed raised from the dead according to the facts from these historical writers. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul. These historical writers have told us that Jesus indeed has been raised from the dead. Now, He was dead. We know that. Rome doesn't put people on the cross and they don't come down dead. I mean, they were dead. Jesus was dead. Jesus was dead on the cross And these men are telling us that He was raised from the dead on the first day of the week, Sunday. Do you believe that? I believe it. I believe it with all my heart. You know, sometimes if you ever doubt Christianity, if you ever doubt your faith, if you ever doubt if any of this is real, if you doubt, if you wonder, is Claire really in heaven today? If you wonder, if you question, if you doubt, look at this. Can you deny the resurrection? I can't. Too much evidence. Too much fact. Too much historical I can't deny it. It's true. That's why the church meets on Sunday. That's why we're here. God created the earth in seven days and told us to rest on one day. And for the first couple of thousand years, it was on Saturday, the last day of the week. But Christ rose on the first day, so now the first day of the week is the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what we do every Sunday, but today of course is a special day when we remember particularly His resurrection from the dead. He did! He raised! He was raised! He rose! That's why we're here! That's what we do. We worship the risen Savior. Now, if you believe that, and you realize that it's central and vital to Christian faith, if you do, and you understand all of this, what else do I have to say? Except this. If He was God the God-man, who killed him? Who kills God? And if he was God and the God-man, why was he dead? Why was he dead in the first place? Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. This is a passage of Scripture that clearly and concisely tells us the facts. Tells us what happened and why regarding the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 24. But for our sake, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 4. Eh, Preachers make mistakes. I'm no Pope. (laughs) Romans chapter 4, verse 24. But for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, He was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Delivered up for our transgressions, raised because of our justification. Paul the Apostle has been showing similarities between Abraham's faith and our own faith. In the verses beginning chapter 4, he speaks about Abraham and he says in verses one through five, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as favor but as what is due. You hear what he's saying? In other words, if you work for something, it's not grace when it's given to you. You've earned it. When you go to work and do a job for your employer, you've earned your paycheck. Now, some employers might think that it's by their graciousness that they're giving you this money. But it's not. You've earned it. That's what he's saying about Abraham. His faith was not a work that God owed him anything. It's not like that. To the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but what is due. Now, verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness, not works. He followed God by faith. Now look down to verse 21. As we see that Abraham believed God and believed that God was able to perform what He promised. We can pick it up in verse 19. And without becoming weak in the faith, He contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what he had promised He was able to perform. He's talking about the Abrahamic covenant. That through him all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And how can that happen if you don't have kids? And now he's a hundred years old. He's going, I still believe that God's going to fulfill his promise. I still believe. And of course, then he gives his son Isaac. God gives Sarah, opens her womb, and Isaac is born. And that's what Abraham was believing in. No matter what, I'm too old to have kids. My wife is way beyond the ability to have kids. And yet I still believe. I still believe. That's faith in God. Faith that God is a miracle working God and can fulfill the promises that He has made. And here's what he goes on to say. It's not just Abraham, it's you. Verse 22, Therefore, and when you see a therefore, what do you do? You always ask what it's there for. It's connecting back to what Abraham has said. Therefore also, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. His faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only, Was it written that it was reckoned to Him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead? See what he's saying? just as Abraham believed that God was a miracle-working God and followed God where He led Him out of the Ur of the Chaldees and believed that He could bless Him and make Him a great nation and that all the nations in the earth will be blessed because of Abraham. We too believe in the God who promised back in Genesis 3 before Abraham, back in Genesis 3, that there would be A Redeemer who would be bruised on the heel. That's the cross. But who would then crush Satan on the head. That's His victorious resurrection. We believe that. We believe that. We believe in the Scriptures that teach that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. We believe in the Scriptures that say that Jesus was indeed God incarnate. We believe the Scriptures that say He was dead. And we believe the Scriptures that teach that we've looked at this morning that He was raised from the dead. That's what we believe. Just like Abraham. Now, we don't work to gain salvation, but we believe that these things are true. And that is how, just as with Abraham, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. In other words, God's righteousness was imputed to him. God's righteousness is imputed to us as we believe. There's no kind of works that you can do that are going to gain you heaven. People think that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. There are no good people. Nobody is worthy of heaven. In the eyes of God, there are no good people. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, not even one. That's what He just said in chapter 3. There are no good people. The only people who go to heaven are bad people who believe. Sinners who believe and are saved by the grace of God. Now, here's the question. What do they believe? And here's the answer. That He was delivered up because of our transgressions And He was raised because of our justification. This is what we believe. This is what we believe about today. About Easter. About the Gospel. That Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions. Speaking of His death. When He speaks about Him being delivered up. He's speaking about His death, His crucifixion. Pararitomai is the Greek word and it means to give into the hands of another or to betray. That's what He's speaking about when He says He was delivered up. Given into the hands of another or betrayed. And so I want you to just think with me for a few moments of the occasion of His being delivered up. The occasion of His Jesus is being delivered up. We find it in all the Gospels. And you know the account. Just think about it. You know it. He was arrested in Gethsemane. Right? He was carried away by the mobs. And he was turned over to the high priests for trial. Their mock trials. And then he was sentenced and crucified on a Roman cross where he was killed, murdered, and then buried. The focus, that's the focus of the meaning delivered up. He was delivered up. But I want to take a little bit closer look at this and think about the source of his being delivered up. That's the occasion of his being delivered up. The whole complex of his betrayal, of his arrest, of his trials, of his sentencing, of his then being murdered on the cross dead and buried in the tomb. That's the occasion. Let's look now at the source of His being delivered up. In other words, what were the events? Look with me in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. Matthew 26. This is what we looked at the other night at our Good Friday services. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, we read of how our Lord Jesus Was delivered up by Judas to the mob. If you look down at verse 45, this is in Gethsemane still. He came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed, delivered up into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrayed me, the one who gives me up, delivers me up, is at hand. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a great multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. And immediately he went to Jesus and said, Hail Rabbi and kissed him. Can you imagine the betrayal, the deception of a close friend who comes and kisses you as the sign of betrayal? People say that Judas was well-meaning. He wasn't that bad of a guy. Judas was a wicked sinner. Jesus said it would be better for you if you had not been born. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you have come to do. And they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. He was delivered up to the mob. They seized him and they dragged him away. Down to verse 57, as we see that he was delivered from the mob to the priests. And those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. Hidden here, he's delivered up to these priests for this mock trial. And I'll just remind you of the accounts that we have in the Gospels. They go on this trial and they can't find any witnesses, remember? Nobody can bring anything against Jesus. So they get a couple of liars. They try to get them to say something. And what do they say? He said he would destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. That really didn't mean anything. So what? And then finally they had to say, Are you the Christ? And he of course said, according to the Mormons, No, I'm not. No, he said, I am! I'm the Son of God! And then they tear their, their robes. at a big show. They had pre-torn robes, by the way. It was like part of the deal. They were already there, ready to be torn. So they tear their robes. Oh, what further need do we have? This man blasphemes. All a show. That's what happened, though, at the high priest. But then if you look at chapter 27 of Matthew, beginning in verses 1 and 2. Now, when the morning had come, the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put Him to death. And they bound Him and led Him away and delivered Him up to Pilate the governor. See? Delivered Him up to Pilate the governor. He was delivered up by Judas to the mob. He was delivered up by the mob to the high priest's. He was delivered up by the high priest to the Roman authorities to Pilate. And then he had to stand before Pilate in that mock kangaroo court. Pilate knew it was a kangaroo court. Pilate knew it was for envy that he had been delivered up. But he was delivered up. And then we have further on in this chapter in verse 22 and following that he was delivered up from Pilate to the executioners. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, let him be crucified! Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Calling out this meek, mild, sinless, peaceful man to be put to death. And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the multitude saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourself. So he he delivers them up to the people's will. And the people answered and said, His blood be upon us and our children. And it has been ever since. Ever since. Then He released Barabbas for them and after having Jesus scourged, delivered Him to be crucified. Delivered Him up. Delivered Him up. Delivered Him up. He was delivered up in all of these cases to be crucified. The New International Version translates that. Delivered Him up. Or delivered Him over to death. This is the progression of Him being delivered up that we find in the Bible. However, I say to you that these are not the ones who ultimately delivered Jesus up. The one who delivered Jesus up to the cross was His Father! God the Father is the one who delivered Jesus up to the cross. The cross was the eternal plan of the triune God. He had to die on the cross, shed his blood. Prophesied in Psalm 22, very clear picture of what crucifixion was thousands of years prior to it even being invented. And that's why the Jews had to deliver Him up to Pilate. Because if they had killed Him, they would have stoned Him. It wouldn't have been the same. It wouldn't have been the shedding of blood. So to fulfill Scripture, He was delivered up to the Romans for crucifixion. And all of that came about by the sovereign hand and power of God the Father. I want you to do me a favor and turn very quickly to John chapter 3 John John's gospel chapter 3 and I want to read to you the most famous verse in all of the Bible the one that the people at the football stadium stand there and hold it up in the end zone John 3:16 and here's what it says for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What does that mean? It does not mean that he gave Jesus to the world to live, he gave Jesus to the world to die. God so loved the world that He gave His Son to be executed. But as we'll see, it was not a mere execution. God is the One who gave the world a Savior. Jesus. And God is the One who gave Him to die. It was the eternal plan of the Father. It is what Jesus came to do. And it is the Father who brought the Son to the cross. It is the Father who brought the Son to the cross. But you would say, why? Why, why would God do that? That brings us to our next point. The occasion of Him being delivered up. The source of Him being delivered up. Ultimately, the Father. And now the reason for Him being delivered up. If you would look back to Romans chapter 4. The reason for Him being given up. Romans chapter 4. Why would God deliver Him up? Why would He do that? Romans chapter 4 and verse 25 He who was delivered up because of our... Let's not go any further. You! Why was He delivered up? No matter what else comes next, and we will have more, but no matter what else comes next, He was delivered up for you. We can even say He was delivered up because of you as we'll see in the text. But the reason that God the Father sent the Son and the reason that the Son was delivered up to the cross was because of Me! My need! This is why God sent His Son to the cross. For Me, for us. Because of our transgression. Now remember, the apostle Paul is addressing the church at Rome. That's who this letter is written to. So when he says our transgression, he's not talking about everybody. He's not talking about everybody in the whole world. He's talking about Christians. Believers. Jesus died for believers. He was delivered up for those whom the Father gave Him. Those who will believe. He was sent to the cross by the Father for us. If you are here today and you are one who says, I believe in Jesus. I believe that He was the Son of God. I believe that He went to the cross. I believe that He was truly dead, buried. And I believe that on the third day He rose again. If you believe, confess with the mouth that Jesus is the Christ and believe, you're saved. He went to the cross for you. For you. But next, the text says, notice, He was delivered up because of our transgressions. It was for us and it was for our sin. Our sins. That's why Jesus had to die You know, man is born into this world at enmity with God, an enemy of God, against God as it were. And we need to be reconciled. But we can't do it by works. That's what he's been saying about Abraham. Abraham, you can't do it by works, can't do it by works. Has to be by grace. Has to be by faith. Has to be by God. And what he did was die on the cross. For our transgressions, to pay our sin debt. His was not the death, the mere death of a man, his death was a sacrifice. All the Jews would have known this. They had seen for centuries the killing of bulls and goats and the shedding of blood. It was a bloody, bloody religion, even in the Old Testament. Shedding of bulls and goats' blood, and then that one day, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take the blood into the Holy of Holies. They knew all about this. And here was the sacrifice of Jesus once for all. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 real quick, and then we're going to go back to Romans 4 one last time. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 12, I'll start at verse 11, and every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifice which can never take away sins, but He, that is Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for the sins for all time sat down at the right hand of God. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Make no mistake. This is what was taking place on the cross. Not just a a man dying. Not just a death. God the Father was pouring out His wrath upon His own dear Son, Pouring out His wrath on His Son while He hung on the cross. And the wrath He was pouring out on Him was the wrath I deserved. The wrath that He was pouring out on Him was the wrath that I would incur if I was not saved by His grace. The wrath that He was pouring out on Him was my hell. That I would have to pay for in eternity were it not for Christ. The Father was actively pouring out His wrath on the Son for our transgressions. He was a sacrifice for our transgressions. And so His blood sacrifice pays for our sin debt. That's what was happening. Before I turn back to Romans, before I turn back there, you think about this precious blood of the sinless, loving Jesus as He hung on the cross. It was being shed for your sins. For your hell. He was taking it there on the cross. Now as you turn back to Romans chapter 4, let me ask you this. Do you think that God doesn't take sin seriously? We have countless churches in our day that don't even want to mention sin. Oh, we don't want to offend people. We don't want to upset people. We don't want to get people uh, uh, you know, uh, worried or maybe they won't come back if we tell them that they're sinners. God took sin so seriously that He sent His own Son to die for the sins of His people on the cross. If He took sin so seriously as to give His Son to die on the cross, don't you think He will pour out His wrath upon worthless, lost sinners in hell for all eternity? He will. If He would pour out wrath on His Son, He will pour out wrath on you! if you do not repent and turn and embrace His Son. He takes sin seriously. So seriously that this text tells us that He was delivered up because of our transgressions. Because of our sin. Sin is an awful thing. Offense against a holy God. And as he poured out his wrath upon his son, do not think he will not pour out his wrath upon lost, rebellious sinners. But if you have the Spirit of God working in your heart, oh <laughs> sinner, this day, you can come to Christ and know that his sacrifice on the cross pays your sin debt so it is paid in full. That text in Hebrew said once for all, never again. There is no need of any more sacrifice. There is no need of any works on your part. You believe in Christ. You are saved by His sacrificial death on the cross. And you can live your life rejoicing in His death and in His resurrection as we do in church. But it is the same wrath of God which Jesus took on the cross for the saints, the same wrath of God that awaits lost people in eternity. Turn from your sin to Christ. Know that He has paid your sin debt. Or mark my words, you will. You will. So now, we see here in this text, delivered up because of our transgressions and raised up for our justification. And that is what we celebrate today. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead for, as the text says, our justification. And that means that God accepted His work that He did on the cross, accepted His sacrifice, and to show that He accepted His sacrifice, raised Him from the dead alive. And that's why we rejoice. He gave His life. He paid our debt. And now He's alive as proof that it's done. And as proof that we will be raised from the dead with Him when we die. Never to die again. Because We are in Christ. God did not abandon Him to the grave, but He raised Him up so that chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, and remember, what is the therefore? Therefore. Because it connects back to what He just said. Delivered up for our transgressions. Raised up for our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, not by works, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. But we believe it. We believe that Jesus gave His life for our sins and that He was raised for our justification. And that's the part of the passage I read earlier in verse 8 that God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by His blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. That's the message of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And here's what it all comes down to be. Verse 11. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we now have received this reconciliation. We exalt in Him. And what is that? That's church. That's what we do every Lord's Day. Exalt in the Lord because He has redeemed us. Because he has paid the price, because he has saved us, and the resurrection <laughs> proof that it's real that we have been saved by Jesus' work. Amen He has risen, he has risen indeed, let's pray.